to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. discussion before we get started today what happened to this ooey gooey gummy cake butter cake okay cake thing okay so i i have a i have a friend visiting town from st louis i said anders is there anything you want him to bring anders said <laughs> ooey gooey butter cake which is a staple of st. a staple louis. of st louis yeah uh i tweeted this i mean, not tweeted this i texted this as a joke to the friend he then brought butter cake from St. Louis. I brought the butter cake to the podcast. Not just any butter cake, gooey butter cake. Ooey gooey butter cake. Ooh, ooh, mm, mm. Did I add a bunch of shit? Is it gooey butter cake is what it's called? Go- uh, monkey, monkey bun. Uh, monkey bun? <laughs> when I was in St. Louis and I was 17 and I heard about this, I, I think I accidentally called it monkey cake when I ordered it. That sounds horrible to <laughs> say out loud. Person, the barista was like, "Yeah, yeah, we got yeah, it." Yeah, don't say it. that. Don't <laughs> say that word. Um, yeah, so I'm holding a big tray of ooey gooey butter cake. I think it's just gooey butter cake. Yeah, it is just gooey butter cake. <laughs> well, it's also ooey. And I'm outside Jake's apartment, and I'm holding two cups and a tray of gooey butter cake, and I'm pressing the door code, and the whole cake falls out of my hands, clip clop onto the ground top of the cake first onto the glue factory cement outside of the apartment. Oh, no. Was it because I asked you to get me a pumpkin latte? I, I should have used a drink tray. Yeah, I oh, did, did no. too much. And my Catholicism has been activated. <laughs> this is my fault now. Well, it, I, in a way, I was suffering directly for that. So, yeah, it's got, like, chunks of asphalt in it, but I do really want to try it, and now I'm wondering, like, if we spoon the bottom, if that would be... I ha- It's right there. You don't need to show me pictures. Yeah, it's five feet away from us. Also, yeah, we do this every podcast. They can't see the pictures. <laughs> try, just trust me, listener. I'm looking at a gooey butter cake, <laughs> and it's full of paint chips. Apparently, it is... Um, it was made by mistake, and it is occasionally known as ooey gooey butter cake. It's a Powerpuff right? Girls oh, cool. style dessert or chess cake. Yeah, chess cake. But che- uh, checkmate. <laughs> your move, liberals. <laughs> some German, some German American baker made it on accident. They were trying to make regular cake batter, according to Wikipedia, but reversed the proportions of butter and flour. It accidentally came in the. <laughs> Perhaps there he was fucking his cakes as he does every week. Oops. <laughs> okay. So they and then it became a-, a thing, and they would put it as like an adhesive on Danish rules and shit, and then it became its own its own cake. And it's if what you is go this there, thing even gonna taste like this is regional to St. Louis. Yes, and you know the trouble with it is you look at it and you expect it to have a lemon flavor. I do. Yeah, but it doesn't. It's 
buttery. All right, I, am, I have to. I, I am going to eat from the bottom of the cake once we okay. get off here. Yeah. I didn't Just take know my, that that's my lactate before, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat it. But I'll take some home. Um, Jeremy brought that to you from Missouri. I'll take some home. <laughs> you have a debt to pay. You dropped <laughs> it, it face down on. That's why we're going to have a spoonful of the bottom. So we got to just like somehow separate the top. But the top looks like the best part. Just don't yeah. go to the top. Just do it from the bottom. It, yeah, it does look like the best. All part. of the top was. Touched. By it the looks ground. fine to me. It fell head top down onto the pavement. It's kind of concave, so like it really, the only the rim would have touched the concrete. You know, if you're gonna have some, just don't touch the rim. We have a really smart guest <laughs> for you today, guys. You're gonna <laughs> love quick, this episode. Real quick, they say five second rule. I've read that it's more like a thirty to forty second rule because it takes a while for the germs to this gather. Is- very and again, and we keep saying this, it doesn't count if there's like asphalt chunks in the top of the cake. New York City, <laughs> the rules. That is? Are, I thought it was sugar. It's like one second in New York. But also, uh. this, sounds, this is very like I did my own vaccine research logic. <laughs> hey, it was on NPR. It was on NPR. Yeah, we're going to well, need Well, they've a, never lied to us. You're going to need well, yeah, a booster like, after eating this thing. Good Lord. <laughs> they're, health, they're health freaks. Actually, it makes this cake makes you immune to COVID. <laughs> Honestly, <it> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bivalent cake strain. Yeah. You don't need vaccines. You just take gooey butter cake that's been on the New York City ground. For that's right. You heard seconds. it from us. This, you, the fact that you just said that means when people download this podcast, they're going to come with a big fucking thing oh, that God. says, like, disinformation <laughs> waiver. You cannot vaccinate yourself with a cake. <laughs> yeah. It's Poddam America for Ooh, another week. I, let me uh, intro our guest. I should uh, just begin by explaining saying we're talking about the deep state and all our little pedants and wonks are going to little want a little definition before we dive in. It's like a deep cake. Right. It's a deep the cake. gooey state. You got the top of the cake, which is Congress. Which and, is ooey. Yeah, and the governments and the elected officials. And then below that, you got what really makes the cake a cake, and that is a loose clandestine network of intelligence, military, and... Business officials and people. Ooh. More butter than flour, where the flour is a good structure and the butter is corruption. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the base of the cake. That's the, the, what's the word? The crust. Yeah, the superstructure the yeah. of the cake. That's what makes it function. You know, I hope this cleared up everything for you at home. Yeah. This is Mark's, this is, he said, this is how he described no, it's just for all Society the people who are like... Society is a cake. Yeah, he's Der Kaken <laughs> from his famous book, Der Kaken. He was German, and so was the maker of gooey butter cake. Uh, I'll allow you to draw conclusions at home. All right, let's go to the interview <laughs> with Mr. Professor Aaron Good. All right, we are now joined by Aaron Good, who is the author of American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, uh, as well as the host of a podcast of the same name, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Yes, and uh, this book has been out for a little while now. Um, it was, I think, originally a dissertation of yours. Um, you are in, in the world of, of academe, and I'm really curious how this has been received among your, your colleagues, because this is about the deep state parapolitics. These are topics that uh, academia has been real, even sort of the left wing of academia has been really loath to dive into how has it been uh, received by by the scholastic world? 
Well, it's funny that you say that because um, it's very far out of the mainstream of political science. But I was able to put together a dissertation committee that included and a prospectus committee that had uh, four guys from the Temple University Political Science Department and then a sociology professor from Sonoma State, Peter Phillips, and a history teacher from American University, Peter Kuznick. Um, and then Lance DeHaven Smith of Florida State was on the uh, prospectus committee, and then he fell ill. He had to get out of there. But there are more people in political science that secretly probably agree with me than you might guess. And other people in other disciplines, like some academic historians, one guy who wrote a really good book, uh, maybe the, probably the best book on the coup in Iraq in uh, 1963, um, which is one of the lesser known events in uh, the history of covert operations. He contacted me and was telling me how much he appreciated the book and its, uh, you know, its take on oil politics, which was cool to me because he's a specialist. Um, and then other, there's going to be a couple reviews, at least in uh, at least one review in an academic journal that I know of. And then another right, another sort of blob think tank requested a review copy of the book. But I'd be real surprised if they wrote anything <laughs> on it. I don't even think they would want to diss it because it's like they would rather just pretend it doesn't exist. But I think that there are more people who actually think that that who see that the American empire is basically a fraud and that much of the things I say are accurate. And if you listen to people like Jeffrey Sachs lately. Mm. He almost sounds when he talks about the U.S. empire and the lawlessness of it all, it almost sounds like he's doing like a kind of slightly, you know, kinder, gentler summary of of my book. So I think the criminality of the whole U.S. empire is just kind of becoming more and more obvious to people. But as a result of that, the the, the regime is kind of more, you know, crazy about stamping that out, perhaps in a, in a bigger sense. And so we get all these NAFO and yada, yada, all this other propaganda stuff. But it, in general, people nobody's really written a detailed criticism of the book that like re- tries to refute its main points, which to me is pretty is pretty interesting. Yeah, well, it's a it's a really great book. I recommend everyone check it out, and especially because it's it's taking sort of a political science angle on uh, the history of the deep state, which is is I think pretty unique, um, and it's very historical. Uh, you start sort of in the World War II era with. Uh, the rise of, of the deep state. But um, I want to ask, American empire, I think we would agree, somewhat predates the what we would call the deep state. Um, how would you um, characterize the antecedents to the deep state with American empire? And, and, and what were sort of the structural incentives for the intelligence apparatus to, to arise? Well... This is a a case where it was circumstances actually kind of helped me to get more insight into this because political science is a discipline that's notoriously ahistorical, meaning that they just do not have a good way of incorporating history. They like to reduce everything to a set of variables that you can plug in and then make some sort of findings about it and formulate theories that way. And so there's not a lot of history uh, that's a part of the curriculum exactly. But I was teaching history to uh, help pay the bills and such at a high school while I was working on my dissertation. And it, they, I taught U.S. history for several years and it made me go back and look at early parts of U.S. history and think about it in ways I hadn't. I also taught similar courses at Temple University uh, as a graduate student when I was working on the, the Ph.D. So these things were good because I, my expertise is really post-World War II, the intelligence agencies, the, the, the post-World War II U.S. empire and so on, and the national security state. But going back and looking at the U.S. from the very beginning and starting to study these issues that led to the colonial, English colonialism in America, it all seems of a piece uh, related to capitalism. I mean, in England, 
this is a very simplified version, but I think I'm going to hit the, some main points here. In England, you had feudalism, you know, for quite a while. And eventually you get the enclosure movement, which uh, where they start taking the commons and walling it off for sheep uh, in order to support England's textile industry, which is the real first industry in, the, in England. And it basically gives rise to modern capitalism. And as a result, you have uh, a pressure on the population because they're being pushed off the land. And this and also the landed estates, they only can pass on their lands to the firstborn. So you have these like lesser born sons that have to go and strike it out somewhere. So a lot of them go to uh, the New World and they go to Virginia first. And, that, and the people that go to Virginia are the Virginia Company. It's not um, a Christian crusade or anything like that. It's a business venture. And they grow tobacco and they start importing slaves when that gets too expensive because of the white indentured servitude's labor. And they want to keep pushing west. They fight a revolution in part in order to be allowed to keep going west and to keep uh, enslaving people, which Britain was against both of those things eventually. So a big part of the U.S. Western expansion and the um, Revolutionary War is capitalism and the pressures that it put to go out and colonize, and then these business ventures you set over there, up over there, and then the colonists have incentives to keep going west and killing more Indians, and so on. So they go see the Shining Sea. They, you know, they steal land from the uh, Mexicans with the Mexican-American War. And as soon as they do that, by the time they do that in the 1850s, uh, that's consolidated. They take a boat right into Tokyo Bay, and they say, you guys are going to trade with us. Okay, so they basically have the idea that once they get see the shining sea that they're going to go and start going into the pacific and make a lot of money there because they've seen the they know about the opium wars they know about how much money got made there and a lot of the americans in the northeast the early industrialists were also they made their money on the opium trade so there was this pressure to go into the pacific really ramps up with the spanish-american war uh once basically the u.s goes from see the shining sea and the frontier is closed by the 1890s then it's a question of do you want to like develop america's domestic economy and the markets here and boost living standards or do you want to go for imperialism they fight the spanish-american war they go for imperialism but america's still somewhat isolationist in its sentiment not wanting to be an overseas empire like the brits that's kind of how they identify themselves and uh so they enter world war one in part to help jp morgan uh, be sure to be able to collect all the money they'd loaned to the Brits. And uh, then they set, they kind of set the stage for World War II with the way that they left the settlement with Germany. And the key is, in, in, in with World War II, you had the elites in the United States make a decision that, this is Wall Street basically, right? The Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller, Standard Oil, all this money, they get sanctioned from the FDR administration to plan U.S. entry into the war and the post-war empire. And that's what they do. It's been a top-down affair from the very beginning. The richest people in the United States, they looked at what was happening in World War II, and they said, we're going to enter this war, and we're eventually going to win because we're the most powerful industrial center in the world and so on. And then we need to actually be the hegemon of the global capitalist system that's going to emerge. And that's what, that's what they did. So it was always an empire. The U.S. was always imperialist, but it was continental until you get later into the 1800s, and then it's a question of, okay, are we going to build a prosperous country here alone and not be imperial, or are we going to practice you know, international imperialism? And they do the Banana Republics and so on, and they go into East Asia, they take over the Philippines, but it's really only after World War II that the U.S. It just goes right for it, and they 
drop bombs on Japan, basically just to show the Soviets that they were in charge. That was totally gratuitous at the end of World War II. And the next year, 1946, they're threatening the Soviets themselves, their, al- their supposed allies, that they're going to drop a nuke on them if they don't get out of Iran, Okay, which is not America's backyard. So it, it starts very, it's a, always an empire in the U.S., and with World War II, they just they decided, hey, we're going to be the global empire, and it's going to be great. It's going to be the American century, not a century of the common man, like Vice President Henry Wallace wanted. Mm. It was just going to be all empire. And we're seeing that up to this day kind of finally starting to unravel. But it's been a long, you know, almost 80 years process. Wow, it's fun watching it all in fast motion like that. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get an animator, put that on, on YouTube. Um but yeah, the World War II, I think, is a really fascinating time domestically in the United States, particularly the end of the war, uh, 1944. You mentioned Henry Wallace, who I kind of see as one of two wolves, if you will, in the United States, in uh, the Democratic Party, in, in Franklin Roosevelt himself. Um, you know, he had his last two vice presidents, Wallace and Truman, uh, of course, Wallace was like booted off the ticket um, in 1944. Uh, by the by, the party establishment, um, but what what did he represent that was such a threat to the at the time the inchoate uh, deep state, and um, what kind of path perhaps would he have charted had he been allowed to to stay on as uh, Roosevelt's successor? Well, he uh, is the most notable New Dealer, perhaps. He was the Secretary of Agriculture, and he saved U.S. agriculture by taking unconventional steps like slaughtering uh, a whole lot of baby pigs because there were extra amounts and they donated the pork to poor people uh, and paying farmers not to grow crops to prop up uh, crop prices. And he commented on how this, that the whole catastrophe was a result of a criminal lack of statesmanship leading up to the Great Depression. And he wanted to essentially copy some of the good things that the Soviets had. His idea was that the U.S. would copy things like the healthcare systems and educational systems and full employment of the Soviet Union. And then hopefully the Soviet Union would copy, you know, free speech and other freedoms that we have in the United States and that the companies could peace or countries could peacefully compete with each other. This was a direct contrast to what Henry Luce was advocating. Henry Luce was the publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune magazine, and he was part of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he basically pitched the plan for empire in Life magazine in his essay, uh, An American Century or The American Century. He's was putting it out there as like his plan for the CFR's plan for like global free enterprise and shared prosperity under American, you know, auspices. You know, of course, prosperity wouldn't be that shared. But that's beside the point. Now, Henry Wallace was on the other. He was the vice president and he was probably more in line with what FDR wanted. And he gave a speech called The Century of the Common Man. And he was calling for just the opposite. He was saying the U.S. should have some global leadership role, but it should be because we have all of this technology and all of this industrial capacity and that we should use our power to uplift humanity and allow countries to Uh, have better access to the the fruits of human technology and to uplift themselves according to however they best want to plan and organize their economies. And we can let this be a fair competition and peaceful competition among countries. Uh, And then hopefully this will usher in a new age of abundance and uh, security for for mankind. That was what Wallace wanted. That's not what we get. We get the the U.S. empire. Uh, And this was uh, this Wallace had to go. 
it's it seems now overdetermined. I think. I think if they hadn't gotten in at this point after seeing the way that they operate mm. uh, and and function and the amount of resources they had behind them, I think that if they if Wallace had somehow won, they they would likely would have killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is just what they do. I mean, the next statesman who comes along with a similar, even though he doesn't say state it outright, but the next person who comes along sort of advocating this kind of world order and uh, wanting to not have the Cold World War is, is JFK, and they get rid of him. So I see Wallace as being, you know, even more straightforwardly advocating that, and uh, that's what they did. They had to get rid of him. And the guy they replaced him with, of course, is the other wolf, uh, Harry S. Truman, um, who becomes president and, and helps establish the post-war global order. Um, what was his role in doing that? I mean, he's he's an interesting figure uh, for a lot of reasons, but um, one is because, you know, he's instrumental in the, the birth of the CIA, but later in life says that we've gotten some mission creep. The CIA has gotten out of control. He comes to at least somewhat publicly regret his, his role in creating the deep state. Um, what was... What was his trajectory like? And, and I'm also curious, what, you know, you mentioned uh, Wall Street. Of course, there's Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a really instrumental firm in all this stuff. I think both the Dulles brothers work there. Uh, and after World War II, how do they get amnesty? Because they, they worked hand-in-hand with the Nazis. Um, was Truman at all interested in prosecuting them? What, what, what was his sort of thinking like in that, in that period and leaving up to, to, to the end of his life? Yeah, the, after World War II, there's something of a political battle between um, people like who had been basically trading with the enemy, like the Dulles brothers and Thomas McKittrick, who ran the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that FDR wanted to prosecute McKittrick especially. And these are people very connected to uh, the Dulles brothers. And the Dulles brothers were, I mean, it was Alan Dulles who was the vice president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He would later become president after, right after World War II. But Alan Dulles was one of the main people behind the actual study uh, that planned out the U.S. empire. He, he also was the author of two still classified parts of the War and Peace Studies Project, which was the planning for the U.S. empire. Uh, and his sections were on security and sovereignty. And Peter Dale Scott and others uh, think that probably those reports called for something like the creation of a CIA because he was a OSS, uh, you know, which is the precursor to the CIA. He was an OSS guy and kind of an oil intelligence guy. And so probably they were, he had already planned out the need for something like a CIA to, to run this world order. Now, Harry Truman's role in this um, is mostly that he was just a guy who had, was not, was corruptible, but in a, without seeming so he'd been able to be successful as a guy who was brought up by the Kansas City political machine, uh, the Pendergast machine, who was like, you know, just one of those mob boss, mobbed up party boss guys, uh, and who later went to jail. But he was, um, Truman was basically plucked from obscurity. He was a failed haberdasher and really wasn't doing much of anything. And then he became a judge and then eventually senator. And then later he hooks up with the St. Louis machine uh, later on in his career. And he had just become a guy who had gotten some sort of good reputation for like in leading a, a investigation into war profiteering. And he seemed like a folksy straight, straight shooter of a kind of a guy. And he was picked mostly because he was a guy who owed his success to other powerful people. And so he's co-optable and that's why they pick him. It's, it, it's hard to, you can't really blame Truman. I mean, you can, but <laughs> In reality, it's like the system picked the man, and that's why they picked him. So you really want to understand why they picked him. 
And even he had some conscience. Like he didn't want to overthrow Mossadegh. It wasn't until he, it wasn't until Eisenhower was elected that that got approved. He talked about the FBI as a Gestapo at at some points. He talked about the CIA as a Gestapo later. But there's no getting around the fact he creates the CIA. He nukes two Japanese cities. Uh, He sets off this arm race. He's there to allow them to like threaten to nuke the Soviets in 46. Um, He's just a guy who, when it came down to it, could be pressured by these more powerful forces. Uh, And that's going to be his legacy, I think, and how he's remembered. Uh, The guy in the Manhattan Project, Leslie Groves, described his decision on the bomb as not one of like basically getting out of the way. He said he was like a little boy on a toboggan. And that's pretty much how it was. He just said, okay, and then that's how it happens. Uh, And then he acts all excited about it after the fact. But it was other people. But that was basically his career. He did what he was told. Yeah, well, there's a really funny scene in uh, Devil's Chessboard where in his post-presidency, he's, you know, as you said, finally uh, getting excited about the about the CIA and all their misadventures and claiming, oh, that's not what we intended. And Alan Dulles comes and pays him a visit and tries to get him to recant this article he's written. And Truman doesn't. He says, no, I, I stand by it. And then Dulles tells the media, oh, yeah, he's confused. He's just like crazy old ex-president now he doesn't know what's going on and uh he he privately apologized to me which was a lie um but it's just funny how much these guys are able to manipulate just even the words of, of former presidency of the united states um and yeah alan does dulles was like it's 1960 so he's over 50 years old which means he's 100 <laughs> he's, he's, he's mad now yeah it's funny how much people just think the president is the one doing all this stuff Right. They have the nicest suit. Yeah. With a face, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a good point because, you know, of of course, after uh, Truman, there's there's Eisenhower. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, in 48, uh, Dulles's man was was Dewey um, and he was disappointed that that Truman won. But, you know, he was not as much of a threat to uh, to the establishment as, you know, someone like Wallace was. So they weren't going to really do anything serious about that. But then they get their guy. In, in Eisenhower in a lot of respects. Um, and, you know, as you write, that's kind of the 50s is sort of the consolidation of, of the deep state. And something that uh, I was not aware of, which you write about in the book, Operation Doomsday, which is a very fascinating phenomenon. What can you tell us about Operation Doomsday? Super villain yeah. thing. Yeah, this, this gets into <clears throat> what Peter Del Scott calls the deep events in U.S. history, which are these very controversial episodes that go out, go on to alter the trajectory of the U of U S history and shape the um, structure of the government as well. They have an institutional impact on the U S government and the doomsday project is fa- factors in the, into these in weird ways. So I'll, I'll explain a deep event. A deep event would be like Watergate or a structural deep event, especially these are the more serious ones like Watergate, the JFK assassination, nine uh, 11. He describes this, Iran-Contra. And the Doomsday Project figures in all of these. It gets uh, invented in the, or it gets established really in the early days of the the Cold War. As soon as there's a nuclear weapon in the early years, they're saying, like, we need to make sure that there's no kind of decapitation strike. So we need a network, communication network that's going to be reliable no matter what. And along with that, there are other provisions to these arrangements that are just not known to this day. They're still kept in great, under great secrecy. Presidents take over and they don't necessarily understand them. So under um, Truman and Eisenhower, 
especially under Eisenhower, there's a they, they create a board of people who are mostly private citizens who would be there to intervene and take control of the government in the event of some kind of catastrophic emergency. And uh, this is not it's difficult for Kennedy to even figure out and for George Bundy to even understand what these proposals are. It's like it takes them quite a while into the administration to even start to understand these. And it's uh, it's quite possible that these institutions, not only is there this sort of military and intelligence controlled communications network, but they may have authorization to do other emergency acts because they are charged with the existential security of the state. And so some of these elements may be in charge of sort of saying when it's an emergency to begin with, like you have to determine what's an emergency event. Initially, it's only for nuclear issues, but this gets broadened. And as is usually the case, we actually don't know what kind of powers these entities have, but they figure a little bit in the JFK assassination. Like there's a, there are communications networks that are referred to by certain parts of the government that we've never, it's never been released to the public or explained like the White House communications network. Uh, boasts about like helping to chronicle the events in Dallas on, you know, November 22nd, 1963, but nobody's ever actually heard those. That's one thing Peter Dell Scott found. Um, in Watergate, James McCord seems to have been working on, he was working on continu continuity of government, which is another name for the Doomsday Project. These kind of measures, which would round up dissidents and uh, enact a, a censorship regime, basically, in the event of some kind of emergency in the United States. So they were laying all this kind of groundwork for it. And what's alarming about this, in part, is that, that somebody like James McCord, who figures in Watergate, he's one of the burglars, but also in the Kennedy assassination. He also covers up the Frank Olson assassination in 1953, where a CIA officer is uh, had been dosed with acid and later tossed out of a window, apparently, because he was deemed a security risk. And so it, and it, the, the continuity of government, doomsday operations, the, the communications network, it's also used in Iran-Contra, like Oliver North uses it in Iran-Contra. In the 90s, Rumsfeld and Cheney are working, even though they're not supposedly in government, they're in private, the private sector, they're actually working all throughout the 90s on updates to this. And then it just so happens on 9-11, they uh, basically activate all of these uh, these certain powers and functions of COG Doomsday Network on the day of 9-11. And we don't know what communications were passed over that way. So this is a whole element of the government that's very secret. But when you talk about like the ability of the state to like intervene in some really overriding way uh, and, and to keep that secret from us indefinitely, COG and the Doomsday Project seem to be major uh, uh, mysteries of, of uh, really the deep history of the United States. So there's a possibility that COG, continuity of government, that's, that's uh, I don't know, on the books, but or on the secret books that most people don't know about. Um, so yeah. there's, there's like and a possibility it, it that... It gets activated every year. Every year, the, re the state of emergency gets renewed since 9-11. So there are still provisions active, and we're not even allowed to know what they are. Wow. There's a possibility that like there's enough, enough of a crisis of legitimacy... We could just have like a president or dictator, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So that'll be totally like legal. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at some of the things that they've done, look at the Frank Olson assassination. It, uh, if you watch Wormwood, you can glean that the, the, in all likelihood, the reason Olson was assassinated is that he was going to reveal that the U.S. was using bioweapons in Korea. So why is he assassinated? <clears throat> because it would have been a horrible embarrassment for the U.S., 
to have that exposed. And so you can kill someone. Well, if that's what the government is authorized to do, to kill people from exposing embarrassing crimes in 1953, then we need to take that into account, that, they've, that the government has asserted that prerogative power. And what does that mean? It means almost anything could be authorized that's logical, and we wouldn't ever have any reason to think that we'd know about it. Well, that leads me to, to my next question is perhaps was there a COG authorization uh, involved in the Kennedy assassination? And more broadly, uh, can you speak of the significance of JFK and uh, why the deep state may have wanted him gone and what you think the, the strongest evidence for uh, a conspiracy is? Well, the JFK assassination is really fascinating and it's worth deep study because it touches on so many elements of the, the history of the deep state, that <clears throat> it's really a great gateway to start learning about the power structure of this of this country. Kennedy takes office, and his administration is kind of schizophrenic, in part because he has so many Rockefeller people running things. A lot of the people from his administration had been in the Rockefeller study group uh, that was part of a exploratory can- uh, venture for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign, uh, when Kennedy wins, he basically has faith in the establishment, and he he calls his friend uh, Robert Lovett, who was a CIA OSS guy in the early days, like OSS, but very establishment guy. And he says, would you like to be my secretary of state or something? He says, no, no, but let me tell you who to put in. And he basically gives him all these Rockefeller guys to put in, like Dean Rusk, um, Henry Kissinger, what, down lower level but um, Dylan Reed, or uh, sorry, Douglas Dillon, who's part of the Dylan Reed Wall Street family, um, all kinds of people like Robert McNamara is one of these people, McGeorge Bundy, like the, his administration is like Rockefeller and Rockefeller is that's the Council on Foreign Relations. That's the people who plan the U.S. empire. These are people who have a view of empire, of the U.S. as being an empire for the benefit of corporate America. They don't package it that way. Kennedy doesn't necessarily perceive that it's that straightforward, but I think he comes to. Um, and he gets he runs as a cold warrior and he's not a communist. He's anti-communist, but not a fanatic about it. But he also resists uh, the pressure to go into war in Cuba. Bay of Pigs, they basically set him up for that. He really outrages them by not pulling the trigger on the U.S. intervention. Um, and he refuses to send troops into Laos when the military brass asked him to. He refused to send troops or escalate in Berlin when he was asked to. Cuba, again, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and in Vietnam, he would never send in ground troops. And he used the balance of payments issue as a part of why he wouldn't do it. He was saying this is going to wreck U.S. finances. So this also gets into another issue of Kennedy. Kennedy was trying to control that. Johnson exploded it. Okay, Johnson reverses Kennedy's policy in Indonesia, which it gives uh, allows the world's biggest gold mine to fall into the lap of Rockaport's Freeport Sulphur Company uh, once Kennedy is out of the way and Sukarno is out of the way and they have to kill not just John Kennedy, but like one, two, three million uh, Indonesians are massacred in the process of this. Uh, you get the Vietnam War. The policy is reversed days after Kennedy's assassination. The uh, evidence of Kennedy's withdrawal is overwhelming at this point, I believe. I think that if you look at that, there's an October 2 memo from Robert or sorry, from um, Maxwell Taylor saying all planning is to be geared towards the recommendations of the Taylor McNamara report, which means all personnel, everything is going to be geared towards a, a gradual withdrawal to be completed by the end of 1965. We'll be done with the training by then. We'll be able to get out. 
Johnson reverses that. So there's a lot of evidence of it. Or there's a lot of reason why foreign policy is the reason that Kennedy gets killed. Most obviously, he wanted to end the Cold War. That's why when he gets killed, uh, Khrushchev is very sad. Nasser is very is devastated. Fidel Castro is very unhappy. Sukarno believes that it was because of his Indonesia policy that he got assassinated. Um, Kwame Nkrumah d- thinks that the Warren Commission is a whitewash. It's pretty much only Western le- and Europeans all think it's this plot. It's really only in the United States that people, <laughs> that, and even then it's not even the public. It's more mm. uh, politicians and intellectual or, and public intellectuals who believe the Warren report. It's the public doesn't believe it. The evidence of a, of a plot to kill King is overwhelming. I mean, there's the tape of him showing him pretty clearly getting shot from the front. There's all these reports of a blowout in the back of his head, indicating a shot from the front from doctors and nurses and Secret Service people behind Kennedy who got hit with ejected brain matter so hard that they got thought they got hit with a bullet. There's the impossible path of the magic bullet uh, and the condition that it was found in and the problems with the chain of custody for it. Uh, th- there's Oswald being a supposed communist, but yet he's working out of a right-wing anti-communist FBI guy who heads the, um, the like, Caribbean anti-communist league. <laughs> I mean, nothing in the, and there's Jack Ruby, who's like a concerned local pimp who uh, comes in and kills Oswald in a room full of cops. Oswald says, I'm a patsy uh, later on camera. Later, Jack Ruby, who killed Oswald, says, uh, powerful people put me in this position and uh, I can't really talk about, it. you know, my life's in danger. I mean, just it's, it's uh, the evidence of a plot there is overwhelming and LBJ and Nixon and RFK, they all believed it was a plot and that the CIA was somehow involved um, and nobody can do anything about it. They, co- they cover it up, but the evidence of a plot there is overwhelming. And what it shows is that it, it, it shows on top of other things that the empire is really in charge and that their control over the media and the political machinery of the country is such that it is a, it's basically a totalitarian system with a democratic uh, facade. And uh, if you didn't believe it just with the JFK assassination, just consider that RFK wanted to reinvestigate his assassination and then he gets killed also under very dubious circumstances. And that's where you see the deep state, the hand of the deep state, the hand of this empire, which is... And the, the stakes, the motives are to rule the world. The U.S. is the world's biggest empire. And uh, you can't really main, maintain the world history's most dangerous empire by following laws and respecting democracy. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty obvious. But, you know, they, they, they put a lot of effort into not allowing us to recognize that. Right. And, and as listeners uh, know, I, I debated, uh, and you as well, debated uh, Bob Bizanko. Uh, on this question. And and one of the refrains conspiracy skeptics always go back to is that, oh, well, it would have come out by now. People would have, you know, there would have had to been thousands of people who who had known the truth if it was real and and they would have said something by now. Uh, What's your response to that? I mean, Dan Ellsberg gives a great um, explanation of this. He says that there are loads and loads of conspiracies in Washington that are very, very explosive and that never get out because of the people that are charged with keeping secrets are good at keeping secrets. That's one of their main things. Okay, Frank Olson was just straight up murdered because he was considered somebody who couldn't keep secrets. And uh, what does that tell you? You know, they've never really admitted exactly what happened. It's only sort of dribbled out. 
I think normally they don't even leave the fingerprints like they did with the Olson case. But we know that they can keep secrets. Ellsberg is one of the few people to leave this these sort of circles and come out and tell us about this. It's funny because Ellsberg actually endorsed the, one of the best JFK assassination books. And he also said that JFK was pulling out of Vietnam. Uh, and that's what he believes. Uh, and Bazanko really, like, admires Ellsberg a lot. I, and uh, But he's always talking a lot of shit about the JFK people, which is a strange thing for a leftist to be that concerned about, you know, mm. I, I, it's some sort of odd personality quirk, I, I, I think, in him, because even if you're a leftist and you don't buy the assassination uh, literature, then why would you care? Like, so it's, it's odd, but you know, this, this is a, they put out all sorts of arguments. Somebody would talk or the government can't really plan anything like that. But I mean, the magic bullet's obviously a, a fraud, and uh, they use the threat of the nuclear doomsday to get Earl Warren and Senator Russell to greenlight this. Uh, there's the the evidence of a plot is just overwhelming at this point, and uh, I don't know any person in my personal life who's familiar with it um, that really believes the one the lone nothing. Even Bazanko won't argue about the case. I bet I bet when you were talking with him, he never tried to argue about the magic bullet or anything like that because he just can't. Yeah, I mean, we tried to stick to like the legacy of of Kennedy and like how the the left should should view that, which you know is is complicated as you as you acknowledge, right? It's not just that he was a savior, and certainly not that he was a socialist. Um, but the thing that I I still don't get is like people say, well, you would have to have the like entire agencies would have to know about this, hundreds of thousands of people would like. Why? I, I just don't understand why it would need to be all these people. Um, yeah. You know, you think of the Catholic Church. I brought this example up before, but like they kept uh, that scandal under wraps, molestation for decades. Um, and it's not like they were telling every single person who was a member of the church that, yes, we're doing this behind closed doors. Right. Um, secrets can can be kept. Um, but and another thing while we're still on this is, you know, uh, there's been another debate similar to this about the efficacy of. Disclosure, like why? Why should we care if it is true? And you know, I share the skepticism that, like, just just the fact of knowing uh, the truth, just you know, the CIA disclosing that they we've you know done some assassinations of political leaders, that that would necessarily lead to anything on its own. But you think of um, Watergate, um, and you know, as as all the problems with that official story and the investigation are that did lead to some political change, right? The political winds did change. And I think on the left, we have to be ready to exploit that if it comes about, if disclosure were to have, were to happen, that is, um, that presents, I think, an opportunity to challenge the legitimacy of institutions like the CIA. When I think of these issues and about the benefit of disclosure, one of the things I think of is, well, okay, we're out here trying to disclose these things. What are they doing? They're trying to make sure that they're not disclosed. On the 50th anniversary, they turned out a whole lot of propaganda on this. Really terrible material. Even though the assassination is an interesting subject to people, Oliver Stone took a movie, a historical, historical uh, fiction, but or a, fiction, a dramatized account of a historical event, you know, the Garrison investigation in, in, uh, into the Kennedy assassination, and it was a huge success. So there's a lot of reason to believe that this is a subject that interests the American public and that they would like to learn about the sort of critical research, but they, they didn't put any of that out. It's like the, the marketplace and the other, you know, the quest for like views and eyeballs and so on gets set aside. 
that to me is noteworthy. So the state is worried about this. They put out propaganda. They leave money. The corporate media leaves money on the table rather than actually putting out content that promotes awareness of this. That to me is noteworthy. They have people in order to respond to these things and put out terrible propaganda pieces like Phil Shinnan at the New York Times puts this stuff out or Tim Weiner at Rolling Stones, another one of those CIA friendly authors. Oh, he sucks. Um, I've read two of his yeah. books. They're terrible. Yeah, his CIA books, which are his book, Legacy Ashes, is sort of useful because it contains facts that are that cannot be disputed. But that's his whole role is to basically compile these things and then spin them in the way that's the most favorable to the agency. It's just classic limited hangout stuff. But, the, you know, in order to police this, they have to have people who are tasked with this job of doing this. I mean, it, to me, it shows that they actually do care about it. And so when I see something like that, I think, well, then we should keep doing it. No, it's not. They're not likely to ever admit it under these circumstances. But potentially what really allows the U.S. to create this phony uh, uh, universe that people inhabit, this mental space, this fictitious gaslight, gaslit reality, is the, uh, the empire, the massive amounts of economic power that is bequeathed to the American empire by virtue of its hegemony over the global capitalist system. And so they have all the power in the world. But as the empire starts to crumble, which we are seeing now, I think that the ability to disguise the empire is also going to decline. And that's why we're seeing all this censorship and other stuff. This is why they still freak out about conspiracy theories all the time, even though it doesn't make any sense, because half the time they're castigating people for conspiracy theories. And then the other half, they're formulating their own really stupid conspiracy theories about like Russia, Facebook ads deciding the 2016 election, you know, so it's the whole I think to me, the whole thing is just crumbling now. And when they put out propaganda, that's like, you know, lone nut JFK propaganda, then I think, OK, well, that's it's actually shows that that's important when they say we don't you know, like the Gray Zone articles recently on how they don't like uh they don't want an anti-imperialist identity to start to form. Well, uh, then I think that that's what we need to ha have form and create. That's how people should want to identify, not by these other issues that they don't really give a shit about one way or the other. Like they don't at this point, they don't care about our gender or sexual identity. I mean, talking about the people really running things like they don't care about that. They would they'd love for us to just be fixated on this stuff, whereas we really should see it as a 99% versus 1% or just let's be anti-imperialist. Let's, let's talk about capitalist imperialism. And there's those two terms are basically inseparable. There's no, there's no capitalism that hasn't been imperialist. Uh, and so let's talk about it and make that the focus of things, not the, the, the bad guys in other countries that we want to obsess about, not other cultural issues and so on. Like the, this criminal enterprise that is running things here, that's what we should focus on and seek to delegitimize. And then internationally, dialectically, other forces are are coming to bear. And if the U.S. doesn't blow everything up, I think that there's a good chance you could really see some interesting changes in the U.S. and U.S. culture, and maybe we'll start to deal with our own history. Uh, it's very interesting time that we're in right now with the sunset of the American century kind of happening all around our ears all the time. And I was wondering, I don't know, maybe if Andrews was going to get to this, uh, are there any predictions you could make about the current standing of the U.S. on the world stage? Like, uh, we're, we're currently in the middle of the uh, Ukraine, Russia, NATO proxy war kind of thing playing out in front of our eyes where everyone's got their fingers crossed that doesn't, like, 
turn into World War III in front of us. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, stuff in the news about new pressures between Taiwan and China that kind of seem like, hey, hey, get ready for this. Get ready to talk about this for a while. Do you have any predictions about um, something we can look forward to in the coming years? Well, I hope you've got a bomb shelter. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, I don't. Actually, that's not the case. I, don't think I, I plan to die during the blast. Personally. <laughs> I mean, that would be better. That would be better. That's what one of the people said, I, I think, in the Kennedy administration, or <laughs> or maybe it was Eisenhower. One of them said the, the dead will, will envy that the living will envy the dead. You're, yeah. you're better off dying. Uh, I already um, do, actually. Very goth. <laughs> yeah. Personal. Yeah. I mean, but it, it's it's true. So one possibility is nuclear war. And this is something that people should absolutely take seriously. It's I, I've never been so disgusted with the Democratic Party as I am today. And that's really saying something. As a guy who grew up Democrat, even worked for the Obama campaign, which really radicalized me when I saw, oh, he's not going to go after the criminals of the Bush administration, that must mean that, that this entire regime is criminal. I mean, that's over. That's more or less the conclusion I arrived at, and that required me to change trajectory. But so the reason the nuclear war thing is such a huge risk, it, you're thinking any rational person would say like, well, wait, Ukraine's on the other side of the world. It can't possibly be a, a threat to the United States to risk nuclear war over. The issue is that the conflict and Russia's ability to act as a sovereign state on the world stage is a threat to the U.S. empire. Russia stopped the dirty war in uh, Syria, pretty much. I mean, they forced the U.S. to like basically engage in outright piracy and gangsterism by occupying a part of Syria and stealing their oil uh, because the uh, Al-Qaeda ISIS, you know, venture that the U.S. backed in all likelihood uh, failed. And so thanks in part to Russian help. So Russia is a big threat to the United States empire, but not to the U.S. nation state. But the U.S. can't say that. The Russia perceives the war in Ukraine and weaponized Ukraine country against it as an existential threat for logical reasons that are geopolitical. It's not like Ukraine has all this oil and that Russia invaded just to steal its resource wealth. It's like strategically enormously important to Russia and for it to be controlled by a hostile U.S. force is extremely threatening to Russia. This is well understood by everybody. And so this is why the 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 conflict there is the stakes are so high. But for the U.S., it's not just that the empire makes all these guys really rich and so on. It's what I was saying. It's part of what I was saying earlier, that the virtue of by virtue of the amount of money and power they control and, and how it allows them to own so much media and everything else that, that inhibits or that, uh, you know, shapes the sense making of people around the world. If the empire falls then the ability to maintain the hologram of the U.S. empire as a as a good, lawful, wonderful, freedom-loving place is going uh, to disappear. And these people have a lot of crimes that they don't want to ever be really have to answer for. And that, so it gives them an incentive to perhaps really engage in some brinksmanship that could that could make world war, you know, a nuclear world war much more likely. So it it's very worrisome, and the fact that the Democrats are not standing up to this is uh, is is terrifying. I mean, it's just terrifying. I'm kind of through being angry with them because I basically understand how it works, and it's more just like uh, just disgust and sorrow and fear because I they the empire not that many people really grasp how sinister this thing is at the top. I think you just don't get rewarded by thinking along these lines, and so. Is the inertia of all this going to propel us towards uh, towards doomsday? Now, if it doesn't, then a lot of things may change. I think that you, a multipolar world seems to be emerging, and the the real area where that's a swing 
in, in the long run is the global south. The U.S. may not be able to use the IMF anymore. And the fact that all debts are denominated in dollars, uh, such that other countries have to always earn dollars and do business in dollars. China offers a potential alternative to that, which the U.S. has always tried to crush, you know, alternatives to being uh, under U.S. hegemony. They want to stop that. I mean, this is the threat with China. If anybody who looks at it honestly is like, wait, what's why is China this huge threat? Are they attacking countries? Are they overthrowing governments? Are they sabotaging us? Are they you know, backing terrorists? No, it's just that they are an economic powerhouse that could potentially compete with the U.S. and give other countries better deals. That's what it comes down to. And it's, it's really obvious, but they'll never formulate it that way. But uh, in the global south, the U.S. is running out of the ability to, to determine events. I mean, Bolsonaro, I think part of the reason they didn't really go after Bolsonaro is it would have just been made the U.S. look so bad. Uh, if I mean, we'll see how things play out. And I, you know, they could go either way. But I mean, the Bolivia thing crapped out. Also, the coup there, uh, you know, this regime change thing in Iran doesn't seem to be going anywhere. They really want something in Taiwan. But what they want and what could happen that would be good for anyone is hard to even figure out. I feel like the empire is dumber than I've ever seen it. And it's just it's but it all comes from the fact that what they want is insane. They want to control the world forever and have everybody accept that this rules-based international order is some worthy thing that they should defend and not just a dictatorship of corporate America over all of humanity. Uh, it's, it's amazing to watch and uh, exciting as it seems to be uh, is spiraling out of, you know, downward, but also worrisome because they've got a lot of nukes. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing to remember is that this is a massive system and, and it's complicated when people say, oh, uh, the government, the empire, it's, it's very incompetent. That's true in many respects. In other respects, it's not true. They are, there's things they're competent at, there's things they're incompetent at, there's like all kinds of different contradictions and different operators in this same behemoth um, pushing us towards oblivion. Um, but as we're closing out, there's so much that uh, we could touch on, you know, there's Watergate, uh, Ron Contra, 9-11, uh, but I do want to make sure to ask about, about this, which you touch on a little bit in the book, which is the 1990s, which I find to be a fascinating time uh, for, some, for several reasons, but one of which is it's this very brief, excuse me, brief blip between the Cold War and the War on Terror, where we're kind of out of enemies for just a little bit. Um, we're trying to, to scrounge some up here and there, but um, Clinton comes into office in 92, and he's on the right wing of the Democratic Party, right? He's never been a, a progressive, but he was in sort of this milieu with people like Gary Hart, who were terrible on economics, but did actually want some reforms of the intelligence agencies. So when he gets into office, there has been some, you know, sort of vague promises and things about, you know, changing Cold War policies and having a saner approach to international affairs and, and intelligence, intelligence gathering. Um, what do you think happened there? Because, you know, obviously none of that stuff really got overhauled in any meaningful way whatsoever. And of course, by 2001, um, it was all, you know, worse than it ever had been uh, prior. Um, what do you think happened with Clinton? And also, you have a blurb in your book from Oliver Stone. What can we do to get him to make a Clinton movie, a slick Willie yeah. movie? Uh, can we pitch that to him? I'll, I'll try to write the screenplay. Are we going to get this maybe about both the Clintons? I think that'd be a pretty good, uh, a good picture. Only 90s kids will remember this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I the, the that idea. I don't even know how to how to think about how what an Oliver Stone Clinton movie would look like because it'd be hard to figure out what to focus on. Uh, it, it was such a weird time. I think that if you, I'll, I'll try to explain Clinton in a in a way that gives him some con- more continuity than he might otherwise. So, and I'll I'm going to chase this right back to Watergate, but I'm not going to go into the weeds on Watergate. So, Watergate in Nixon's the last liberal president. And for a number of reasons, Nixon is swept aside. And so the way that the new the new monetary system gets implemented is not along lines that were kind of protectionist and vaguely liberal, but it really getting rid of Nixon basically ushers in neoliberalism. You deregulation starts under Gerald Ford, who was parachuted in. He never won even the vice presidency. The only thing, the most notable thing he'd done was help cover up the JFK assassination. All of a sudden, he's president, never elected to vice president or president. And then Jimmy Carter is handpicked by David Rockefeller, and he's also neoliberal, more deregulation and so on, but a Democrat with some connections to labor. It's not really till Reagan that you get like the final form of the American president, which is what we've gotten every time. Every president since is basically Reagan is 90 percent Reagan and then 10 percent some some other you know nutty thing. But under once this dollar regime is consolidated under Reagan, you know, after the the debt crises, the oil shocks and all these I explain how all these things factor into this sort of rolling conspiracy to establish this Rumpelstiltskin dollar that Reagan gets, which is unt- unconnected to gold or anything else. And by the by the a few years into Reagan's administration, it's totally established and you have these debt crises in other countries, but they're all in dollar denominated, you know, debts. And this allows the IMF and so on to really stick it to these countries. And that continues under Clinton. Now, foreign policy wise, Reagan and the CIA and other people, they did things to bring down the Soviet Union. They gave loans to Eastern Bloc countries um, and that which also which, you know, were exacerbated because of by interest rates. They helped to collapse the oil prices uh, that Gorbachev was wanting to use to reform the Soviet Union. Uh, they did all these things to bring down the Soviet Union. It was basically rollback, this more aggressive foreign policy, and it brings down the Soviet Union. And then the next president that you have in after that is Bill Clinton. And he is the policy of the U.S. is supposedly this like one world end of history, neoliberal democracy time. But really, if you look at the national security state, they are it's very covert what's what's happening. But you have essentially the Cold War is just still going on. It's just they're expanding NATO, which Clinton promised he wouldn't do or other leaders promised they wouldn't do. But Clinton, you know, goes back on that. They're also sending out jihadis, terrorists, all throughout the 90s in places to besides Afghanistan, because that war's over, but they're sending them all over the former Soviet Union to establish beachheads uh, in different ways to allow to intervene in ways that help the US empire. So they, these jihadis go into Azerbaijan and set up a drug running operation there and a coup that puts in a US puppet. Uh, they're active in uh, Libya. They try to Al Qaeda tries to assassinate Gaddafi in the late 90s. They're active in Bosnia, like the blind sheikh who tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993 and uh, had a bunch of other landmarks he was going to bomb. Eventually goes to jail, right? But he was involved in the Bosnia Jihad. Also, you know, breaking up Yugoslavia. Uh, in Kosovo, you have Al-Qaeda there working with the terrorist KLA, uh, basically on the same side as the U.S. This is in the 18, 1998, 1999. And the Al-Qaeda guy on the ground there is... Muhammad al-Zawahiri, the brother of Ayman al-Zawahiri, 
So you have this, what I call the McJihad period, <laughs> where, uh, which, I mean, you could take up to the present day, but this is like after Afghanistan, all these guys are used in the 90s, and then it's not, it's not admitted that this is a part of U.S. foreign policy. Instead, it's like, oh, we need to intervene in in Yugoslavia, because look at what's happening here, all this violence. But it's like the U.S. is fanning this. They want to break up Yugoslavia. Uh, Chechnya, there's this civil war, and Russia is so brutal against these guys. But, you know, as if you've seen the, Put- the Putin interviews, Putin asks George Bush, he tells Oliver Stone this, uh, he says, why are you sub- supporting these jihadis in Chechnya? And Bush is like, I don't really know about that. That's, that's troubling to me. But, you know, they're they're using these guys. And if you look at the war on terror... It, it basically allows for the same sort of thing. It's a, they pushed, they rolled back communism and then they just kept pushing NATO that way. And then you go a little further south into Central Asia and the Middle East. And it's also like they're advancing that way, but with uh, in a covert way with like jihadis and so on and so forth. So it really is an attempt to keep fighting the Cold War, even though it's supposedly over. And Russia sees this, they attack Russia with economic reforms and shock therapy and so on. Uh, and they really immiserate Russia. It's not until, you know, 2007 or so that like Putin finally says, we're, we don't like this. We don't want this. We want to be able to exist peacefully and have our security, you know, considerations taken, taken care of. Uh, and he throws down the gauntlet kind of with the U.S. And but the U.S. can't tolerate this. But those Clinton years are an important period for understanding how the U.S. was really prosecuting the Cold War by other means. And then it goes, that same kind of agenda takes takes off with the 9-11 wars. And then that dies down because they kind of fail. But the the whole uh, agenda gets picked back up under Obama with the Arab Spring Wars, you know, Libya and Syria. And then they fail there, too. And now the last place left, it seems, that they're where they can sort of poke around the perimeter of Russia and China, you know, as like the Cold War never ended, are places that were Cold War hotspots, which is Ukraine and uh, Taiwan. And so this whole er- this whole time period can be understood in terms of, you know, the last 80 years is really just the U.S. empire versus the rest of the world. And it looks like the U.S. empire is not going to actually prevail over the rest of the world. Ohio versus everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, uh, I guess, is it brings me to my, my last question. You know, it can be very daunting and uh, despondency inducing to think about the sheer amount of power that these these people have um, but you know there's there's hope around the world thankfully but what what can we do in the United States as as anti-imperialists as people who take up that identity unapologetically um, what are some some practical things that that people can do to sort of try and uh, end this end this insane global order well, I think in a way, putting yourself in the right frame of mind to where you can accept the things that you cannot change, you know, is a, and try to change the things you can change, like that sort of detachment, almost like a Buddhist sort of sensibility. It's also something they say in AA. <laughs> I know, I know, but look, this is, you're, you will go, you will lose your mind if you really start to think of like, okay, there's this problem and I'm, I need to solve it because there are there are you know there there are things that are more powerful than us and our ability to deal with these issues but and rest uh take a little bit of solace in the fact that it, dialectically internationally the forces that are going to be the empire's undoing are already in action okay so that's part of what is happening it's not incumbent upon us to try to do it from within i don't really think that it can be done from within i think there's too the hegemony of this 
whole regime is too much for to really think like we're just going to explain people the truth and, and then that's going to somehow turn it around so other things have to happen internationally but really embracing being anti-imperialist and also recognizing the uh, chicanery and the dishonest sort of sinister way that the u.s never acknowledges its empire they don't want it to be an argument of art do you like the u.s empire or not it's like always this focus on these these different enemies it's always them that's why they call people tankies you're like you're an anti-imperialist you're against the u.s army well they don't want to call you an anti-imperialist they want to call you a tanky which is a reference i guess to the fact that countries that the u.s doesn't like have tanks or something i mean these people are are idiots but it doesn't matter there's actually something important that we can learn from this which is they don't want to even defend the empire and they are aggressive they'll resort to childish name calling if you actually try to be an anti-imperialist and keep the focus on the u.s empire so that's what we need to do we need to identify as anti-imperialists and persuade people that this is the way to be and to talk to people to the extent that we can about the reality of the U.S. empire and what this regime is and uh, hope that we can eventually get pe- more people on our side because I, th- this empire is uh, its the greatest enemy, I believe, that humanity has really ever faced. And it's also the reason why everything in America sucks, that we don't we, we don't have a we ne- we ha- don't try to create a society where people can like see a doctor easily go to get an education easily have housing easily that's on purpose like they want to keep us in this state because it's easier to manage people that are kind of desperate and uh, don't have any bargaining power over their lives so these things are all connected and that's something else we should emphasize that this system is not we don't really benefit from it in fact it's giving us kind of a scary dystopian future if we don't change it and so it's actually in everybody's self-interest to event, to try to change this as soon as we have the chance. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I actually have one last sure. question uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but <laughs> can you tell us about this zonky rap we were talking about earlier? <laughs> the, the rap you made for Barack Obama personally? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a kind of a strange tale and uh, we were, <laughs> I worked for Barack good. Obama, which I was good in terms of like organizational things and people skills. There were, it was a great thing to do for a number of reasons, even though it was miserable and they really exploited me to no end. But uh, there were weird parts about it. And one of them was we went to a big retreat sort of close to the end and they made us do this sort of variety show and we had to like either <laughs> sing or something. And so we did a rap and somehow in the office, it became a thing where we really wanted to get a zonky for like <laughs> campaign purposes. We thought it would help us if we had some balloons and a zonky, you know, which I'm is sorry. A what is a zonky? Oh, when okay. you cross a zebra and a donkey. Like a liger. We've all done a little bit of animal husbandry, you know, some conventional sure. and like a so liger. On. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so and there was a part of our region was divided up and it was called the slice. Right. Because that was just it was sort of a slice of Missouri, like the way that it was shaped on the map. And so mm-hmm. we were kind of, I think, stupefied by doing too much work. And the clever rap song that we came up with was to the tune of Ice Ice Baby, except it was Slice Slice Zonky. <laughs> and there was a chorus to it. And we were all kind of rapping and standing around with a microphone and there were verses, but I cannot remember them. All I remember really is slice, (laughs) slice zonky, which did not become that earworm that everybody (laughs) was singing back in 2008, but maybe it should have. So uh, if, if anybody out there 
was OFA 2008 and they have uh, the copy of the lyrics to Slice Slice Zonky, I'd, I'd like to hear them. Yeah. If you have the live yeah, studio recording, please do not post them. Do not post them <laughs> in public forum. <laughs> it's very funny to me. Your uh, memory of this is entirely. I just run, I recall the roar of the crowd as Slice Slice Zonky was belted out. Slice Slice Zonky's been covered up by the deep state for obvious reasons. <laughs> there was a roar from the crowd, and it was not applause. <laughs> <laughs> is everyone singing? Yes, we can. Yes, Remember that? Will I am. Yes, we can. Yeah, the Obama years were crazy. Yeah, yeah people love stuff like that back then. Well, um, yeah, it was optimistic. There was optimism after the Bush thing. It was, but I was at least I snapped out of it after Honduras and after Honduras and the bailouts, and especially with Libya. I was like, man, I'm not that much of a sucker. <laughs> I'm never anyway. writing a rap again. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote "Slice Slice Zonky" for you, you son of a bitch. That's a weak, weak diss power. <laughs> Well, uh, Aaron Good, where can people find your not uh, not limited to your your perhaps more rap bars, but uh, your other work? Where uh, where can people find that? The book you can buy wherever you buy books. Uh, it is American Exception Empire in the Deep State, and the main way people can follow most of the work I'm putting out is the podcast on Patreon. I have a lot of material on these on these issues. Like uh, we have a whole lot of JFK episodes, episodes on Indonesia, Peter Del Scott oral history series. We're doing a long history on my book with uh, Ben Norton, and it actually goes into a lot of history that I didn't even put in the book, uh, but but felt was important. So uh, we have a lot of material there, and uh, I, I've done that in lieu of getting an academic appointment because I don't I think I'm too radical. I'm pretty sure of that. And so until things change, the podcast has allowed me to be able to uh, support myself, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so I uh, recommend people check that out. And there's also AmericanException.com where we do post some articles by me and uh, by uh, article by Peter Dell Scott and some other interesting material that uh, you can find there. All right. Well, uh, oh, crap. I forgot to ask about Wellstone. We'll do that next time. Another uh, I, think they yeah. ki- I think they killed him, but I probably don't know that. I'm not an expert on this one. I just am pretty sure they killed him. Okay. So. That's a good short Spoiler answer. Spoiler alert. They <laughs> yeah. killed his ass. Yeah, they got him. Yeah. We need someone who's not a Holocaust denier to investigate that one. But, uh, <laughs> Full episode on Wellstone on the Patreon. By yeah, the you can check that out. Uh, but Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Wow. Holy shit. I feel smarter now. My brain is full of information about American empire. My white ass is tired for sitting down and listening so much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's time to instead plug our various projects at the end of the podcast. Everyone's favorite part. I'm going to go first. Here I go. I have a show November 18th at Caveat Theater in the Lower East Side of Manhattan Town. You should come. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's called Game Boys, and I uh, sure would love it if you came on down to that. That's every month, but the next one is November 18th, a stand-up comedy show in south, the south part of Manhattan, baby, and that's my plug. Anders, you got anything? Uh, I got andersley.substack.com, which includes an article that was also reposted by Racket, which is a Twin Cities website that I wrote about Paul Wellstone, who we briefly just mentioned. Uh, Also, yeah, also come out to Botanical Comedy November 19th, 9 p.m. at Misfit Kava in Bushwick. And, of course, you can find me on socials for now, for now, at Andersley here on Twitter. 
in Dursley One on Instagram. Before the state shuts him down. That's right. Uh, I would like to announce that I just quit working at a Psycho Billy restaurant, which <laughs> means I freed up some time in my schedule, and I will be returning to the world of stand-up comedy. So if you live in New York City, uh, keep an eye out. I usually put my stuff on my pinned tweet if I've got spots around town and stuff. Uh, I'll be popping up here and there. And I'm also going on tour in January with my old pal, Mishka Shubali. We are going through the south with a golden fiddle or something. Yep, jackass. Uh, Jake ass. Jake ass. That's a good name for the tour. Uh, We're playing... um, Memphis with my pals uh, speed punk duo heels out of Memphis who has planned some sort of show I don't know the details of much yet but it's on J6 and it's called heel surrection so I'm I, they asked me to do it and I was like book me a bus motherfucker that sounds like a lot of fun <clears throat> and uh, yeah we'll be going through uh, the south down to Texas the whole you know usual run of spots if you are someone who's come out to see us before uh, I'm looking to book a show in Columbus, Ohio on, on January 4th still. So oh, if really? you, if you're in that part of the country, uh, and you may be able to get us a show together, hit me up because, um, it's DIY fucker. This is how we book it. Um, fucker. this is how we book it. it. Yeah. In Columbus. Uh huh. The same thing happened in my head when I said that. All right. Uh, yeah. This yep. is how we book it. I'm back and listen to my other show while you're mad. And that's it. These are plugs and have yourself a wonderful, I don't know what time of day it is. You can't say that at the end of a podcast. It's finished. Finished.